Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts for the privilege that we have to gather on this day, the Lord's Day, to worship you in truth and spirit. We know that you have created us for the very purpose of worship. We know, Father, that you have saved us from our sins so that our hearts would be filled with joy in worshiping the God who has saved us. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful truth that Christ has paid our debts, that if we are in Him, we are forgiven, that we are no longer under condemnation, and that you have drawn us to yourself so that we might worship you and live for you. We pray that you would continue to teach us this day as we look at your word, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live for you, what it means to not be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. Pray that you would give us understanding by your word and your spirit. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your spirit into our lives, and we pray that he would work in our hearts, that he would bring the conviction that needs to be brought so that we might repent and confess our sins, for we know that you are just and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pray that you would teach us that which we need to know, that we might bring honor and glory to your name. We pray for those that would be here who are unconverted, how we pray that their eyes would be opened this day to the truth of their sinfulness, and as they see their sinfulness, that they would see that Christ is the one that they must run to for their sins to be forgiven. Pray not only in our place, but Father, throughout the world where the gospel is preached, that many would come into your kingdom. We thank you that you are growing your kingdom and that you one day will have every knee and every tongue, every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How we pray, Father, that you would raise up your church to be a lighthouse in this nation, to call this nation to repentance, but we know that first it must begin in the church, Father, that sin must be avoided, that holiness and righteousness must be exemplified by your church so that we might go into the world and be light and call the world to repentance. Be with those unable to be with us. You know their reasons and their needs and bring them back to us soon. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Turn with me again to the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. And we will be looking at verse 13 today. Verse 13 of chapter 6, Matthew. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one, or deliver us from evil. This follows the request that we looked at last week, the petition that said, forgive us of our sins as we forgive our debtors. And now we see that Jesus adds this petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. After receiving forgiveness, our desire should not commit the same sins that we just asked God to forgive us for, right? I mean, if we go to God and say, God, please forgive me of these sins, would we not say, God, I don't want to commit those sins? 
Give me the strength to overcome them. We must not be like the farmer I heard about who prayed, Lord, forgive me for the hay that I stole from my neighbor this past week, and forgive me for the hay I will steal next week. God does not answer that prayer. God does not hear that prayer because that's not a prayer of true forgiveness, of true repentance. When we pray, we must be praying, God, forgive me because I do not like this sin in my life. I want to be rid of this sin in my life, and I want to be set free from it. Give me victory over sin. So our prayer must be, Father, forgive me for my sins, as we saw last week, but deliver me from them, hold me, preserve me, so that I will not continue to commit them. After conversion, our desire is to become Christ-like, right? I mean, if that is not your desire, then you haven't been converted. I know that sounds pretty blunt, but that's true. If your desire is not to be holy, if your desire is not to be Christ-like, then you have not experienced salvation. We know that Christ never sinned. We know that He was perfect. He was holy, completely obedient to God in every way. And our desire is to be like Him. He put that desire in our heart at conversion. When we pray this petition, this is what we are praying. We know that we'll never be sinless on this side of heaven. We'll never be perfect. We'll never be totally holy on this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean that we are carefree, just coast alone in this life. No, we, by God's grace, pursue holiness. Scripture makes it very clear. Paul makes that very clear. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, of course, that's done by God's grace. But he puts that desire in our heart to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I want us to look at three truths about this petition so that we might rightly pray this petition in a manner that's pleasing to God. Now, we're only going to look at the first half as I worked on this sermon and I got to the second half, Deliver Us From Evil. I realized that y'all would be walking out on me after an hour, so therefore I said, no, we'll tackle the second half of this petition next week. First, what does it actually mean, lead us not into temptation? Now, this may seem as if we're asking God not to tempt us. Now, a lost person might have that interpretation. But those who understand Scripture know that that's not what it's saying. I mean, we know that God is not the author of temptation, right? We know that because James tells us that, other passages in Scripture. James says in chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted of God. For God does not tempt by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. Some translations say, bring us not into temptation. See, God does not incite us in any way. He does not allure us into sin. It's the devil that incites us. It's the devil that lures us to do evil, not God. Now, we also must realize that no temptation comes into our life except that the Almighty God allows it to come into our life. We know that. We know that He's sovereign over all things that He is working all of His counsel after His own will. 
Now we see this in the very beginning of the story of Adam and Eve. Children, did God allow Satan by his permissive will to come into their paradise? They were in the garden. That was paradise. They were tempted. Did God allow Satan to come into the garden of Eden? Well, most surely God controlled Satan and he allowed Satan to come there. Was this God's will? Then you have to say, yes, God ordained that situation. They were put on probation. We know that they were perfect, they were sinless, and God put them on probation. They were tested in what happened. Well, we know they failed the test. And we see the same thing occurred, similar to Job. Of course, Job was a sinner. He was not like Adam and Eve, but he was tested. An example that we see of how God tested Job. And we learned something about Satan in that situation. Satan wasn't allowed to make a single move against Job until God gave him permission to do so. Now, when God said, okay... Then the trials began. Then the temptation began. Then the affliction began. I mean, even to the point to where his own wife tempted him. Remember what his own wife said? Job, just go ahead and curse God and die. Wives, I hope y'all are not like that. I don't think most of you are. But what a temptation. And maybe Job even thought that, you know, it'd be better for me just to die. I mean, what you read about Job, he, he more or less is saying that in some of his speeches that he gives. Now from this, we see again that temptation only comes from Satan, not God. Matthew 1 or 4, 1 tells us this. It makes it very clear that the devil is the one that does the tempting. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. So we see that the Spirit led him into the wilderness, but then what happened? To be tempted by the devil. So we see that it was the devil that did the tempting. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now the old commentators, and when I say the old, I'm talking about the Puritans and, and Calvin and Luther and all of those. Those were the ones who said that Jesus was saying, Lord, this is what he's saying when he says, lead us not in temptation. Lord, let us get, let, do not let us get into such a situation that would be too hard for us to resist. In other words, don't place me into a situation to where I cannot resist the temptations that come my way. Now we may wonder, why would God even allow in any sense His children to be tempted? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we'd never tempted? So why does God do that? Why does God allow us to be tempted? Why doesn't He remove all temptations from us? Dr. Doug Kelly said, Coming through temptation makes us stronger. It's an aspect of that which I mentioned earlier, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. We see this with the heroes of the faith. I mean, you can't help but see it in the life of Abraham and Job and Joseph and Moses and others who came out on the other side much stronger after the temptation came their way. Hebrews in that chapter of faith tells us in verse 34b, out of the weakness 
were made strong, became valiant in battle. Now, we can think about this in the way of military. We just celebrated Veterans Day and those men who, who went into the army. My, my dad was in the army and he was under General Patton. And you know, the general gives the orders and you must obey. Now, now you're in the army and you're praying that the general would not call your platoon up to the front line. My, my dad may have prayed that. I never asked him, but he may have prayed that. Well, the Lord didn't answer that prayer. He was called up to the front line and going over and going there under Patton. And you might realize, well, the general knows what's best. He has to call men up front line. They must go to war. It's necessary for them to do exactly what he commands them to do. And they, they give the command and he leads them into battle. And you say, the general led us into a dangerous situation. Bullets flying around, bombs going off. But what's the motive of the general? Is the motive of the general to put you up there so that you can be killed? No, that's not the motive of the general. The motive of the general is what? To win the battle. To be victorious. To defend liberty and freedom. Now the source of the danger is who? Is the enemy. They're the source of the danger. He stirs up evil. He seeks to kill. He keeps the, seeks to destroy. And that's what the devil is seeking to do. God has called us into the battle. And this is what we face as being in Christ's kingdom. We are fighting against evil. We are fighting against all that Satan seeks to shoot at us. And we're seeking to proclaim the truth, to set people free, to give them liberty. Now, the general cannot guarantee that there will be no casualties. But God does. He guarantees that there will be no casualties there in John 10, 28. I give you eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So, so we're guaranteed that no one can take this great salvation that God has given us away. Now that doesn't mean we, we don't die physically, but he's promising us that we'll never lose this eternal life. So when temptation comes into our life, we must realize that God allows that temptation to come, to make us stronger in the faith, to realize the source of our strength comes from Him. And we know that we need this grace that comes from Him daily. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that's not a verse for a football team to go out and and go to war in the football field. No, that's a verse for us as Christians, realizing that our strength comes from Christ to go out and battle against the devil. Jesus says, He who abides in me and I in him bear forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So we know that we have to be in him and we have to trust in his grace and strength to be able to get us into battle. We must never forget that our strength to overcome any temptation that comes our way is found only in Christ, relying upon Him to give us the grace that we need to be victorious over sin as His Spirit lives in us, His, His one who is our helper, as Jesus said, our, our paraclete. 
And Jesus prayed for us. There in John 17, in that great high priestly prayer, He prayed, I do not pray that you shall take them out of the world. So see, He doesn't pray that we should be delivered from the world, but what? But that you shall keep them from the evil one. So Christ has prayed that we would be protected from the evil one. And not only should we understand, lead us not in temptation that way. Second, how shall we respond in the midst of temptation? When we're tempted, how should we respond? Well, we should cry out to God who's our helper. In this battle against sin, in this battle against Satan... And we know that it comes daily, so therefore we must pray daily. We've, we've emphasized that time and time again as we've gone through the Lord's Prayer. Every day we must be praying these petitions that we have before us in some way. We may not use the exact words, but yet our prayers ought to follow this formula that He's given us. This, this is an outline that God has given us that we ought to be following every single day. In all Christians, there is this desire, as it's already mentioned, to be holy to grow in sanctification, to win the battle against sin. Therefore, you must examine yourself to see if you have this desire. Is it evident that you are justified? If you don't have this desire, then there's no evidence of being justified. I mean, a true believer wants to please God, wants to keep His commandments, wants to live for Christ. He wants to worship. He wants to serve. In other words, he shouldn't have to be begged. He shouldn't have to be begged to come to worship. He shouldn't have to be begged to serve God. No, that's the joy of his life, to come and worship God and to serve God. That's what gives him satisfaction in his Christian walk. He pursues holiness. He desires to be holy. Be ye holy even as I am holy, the Scripture says. So a Christian, even though he may stumble into sin, he has the desire to be holy. And he won't stay in that sin very long. He will not live in sin. John tells us that in 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in me does not sin. Now, when he says does not sin, if you understand the Greek there, he's talking about actively having a sinful life. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known Him. So one that continues to practice sin has never seen Christ nor known Christ. Now, of course, as already mentioned, we must have the Holy Spirit living in us to have victory, to grow in grace. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, and it's a great encouragement to us, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted beyond we are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. You see, God has made a promise to us as Christians. God has promised to never allow more to be put on His children than that which they can handle. In other words, those who must fear and take heed lest they fall should never be terrified when the temptation comes. 
because they know that God is able to supply them the strength that they need. God will either balance our trials to the strength that He has given us, or strength will supply fitting that temptation which comes our way. See, we definitely live in a world full of temptation. I mean, there are traps, there's appeals, there's deceit. Everywhere you look, we are being bombarded in this world daily by temptation. Every place you look, every condition, every relationship, employment, all of the pleasure, all of this is being used by Satan to bombard us. We know that Satan's fiery darts are being shot at us constantly. And therefore, we must look to God to enable us in this battle of life. Now what comfort we have is what this verse says here, no temptation. This is not an exaggeration. When he says no temptation, he's saying no temptation. There is no temptation too great. I remember years ago a book that was written by a particular pastor who left the ministry. Too great a temptation was the name of it. Well, no, there's no temptation too great. Paul says here, no. Now, Paul continues, has overtaken you except such is common to man. So every temptation that comes should be expected is what he's saying. It's common. It's common to mankind. Common trials that come our way. In other words, the temptation that comes our way are the same temptations that of those who have gone before us. That's one reason when we have to understand that we have God's Word. We go to God's Word and we see how those who went before us, the saints, Christians that went before us, how they dealt with life how they live for God, how they put off sin and put on Christ. As we look at their life, we realize that we can do the same. I mean, we have a tendency to exalt them and think to ourselves, well, that's them. No, we all not say, well, that's them. We say, I want to be like them. What did Paul say? He says, follow me as I follow Christ. That was his exhortation to us. And and the thing about that's what we should be able to say. We should be pursuing Christ in the same way that Paul pursued so that we might say those who are weaker in the faith, follow me as I follow Paul, as Paul followed Christ. Or we may even eliminate Paul and just say, as I follow Christ. We must exhort people. We have to realize that that there's nothing new under the sun, as the old saying goes. I mean, there's no new sins. They may be dressed differently, but there's no new sins. It means that the temptation that comes our way may be resisted. If you ask the Lord to help, He will help us. I mean, again, think about the life of Joseph. Joseph relied on God to give him victory over temptation. We are told that God was faithful. And we must also know that by going to Scripture, we see how we can be just as faithful as Joseph was. Did I say Job or Joseph? I don't know. Anyway, I'm talking about Joseph. Pastors have that happen sometimes. Until you're a pastor, you don't realize it. Or until you're preaching, you don't realize it. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Though Satan is a deceiver, God is true. Man may be false, 
The world may be false, but God is faithful and our strength and security are in Him. He keeps His covenant and will never disappoint the loving hope and trust of His children. How right Matthew Henry is. God will never disappoint the loving hope and trust of His children. So we see that God is wise and faithful in all that He allows to come in your life and into my life. He will adjust our burden to our strength that He gives us. He will not allow us to be tempted above what we can handle. That is a promise from Him. And God knows us better than we know ourselves. You know, I've said that many times and I mean it. I mean, that's such a wonderful truth that God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows what you can bear and what you can overcome. You might can say, Lord, I can't face that. Well, He knows that you can. That's the reason why He brought it in your life. And He says, I'll give you the strength to face it and overcome it. He will, in His wise providence, provide strength and enable you to deal with whatever situation comes your way. You can be assured of that. Now, if you rely on His strength from above, there would be no temptation that overcomes you. For God's grace strengthens you and gives you victory if you keep your eyes on Christ. That's the condition, keeping your eyes on Christ. They will not be too great. For God has ordained whatever He brings in your life. And not only has He ordained it, but He has a purpose for it in your life. Again, think of Joseph. Got the right person this time. Think of Joseph's life. I mean, it was all done in God's perfect timing, and it was all done for God's glory and the benefit of Israel. So we are promised that they will not be too great for us to encounter, just like they were not too great for Joseph, for God gave him strength to go through the trials and to deal with all that was brought his way. I mean, this verse doesn't teach that it's easy. What it's teaching is that we must rely on Christ. It doesn't teach that life will always be rosy. I mean, again, think of the life of Joseph. Was it easy for him? I mean, we look at that and we, we conceive in our mind that all of this happened in a short time. Joseph was in prison or it was a slave for 11 years. 11 years. That's as long as you were in school. Add one more. Children. Some even more than that. Some shorter than that. And then two more years in prison. Thirteen years he had to suffer. I mean, that was not easy for him. He had to persevere. And no doubt, he handled it by the grace of God. It was a difficult task. And there is the possibility of one falling in those situations. I mean, it was a great temptation. 
I mean, you think the temptation was easy for him when Potiphar's wife came to him, as she did, and sought to seduce him? Oh, he fled. He left his cloak in her hand. I mean, there is that possibility of falling. Think of David, a man after God's own heart. I mean, he fell into sin, the temptation. He did not overcome, even though the strength was there provided by God. He did not use it and fail. It appears that Jesus is saying about those temptations that they are so great that left to your own strength, you will not be able to say no to them. And, and that's what happened to David. Left to his own strength, he was unable to say no. Not, not everyone has the same weak points in their life. I mean, there are things that might be more difficult for you than for someone else. And vice versa, it might be more difficult for the other person than for you. I mean, you can probably think of sins that you were never really tempted to fall into. I mean, and growing up, I don't know if it's simply because my parents taught me not to do these things, but I had no problem whatsoever, even though there was other kids that, that smoked and drank and cursed and, and did drugs. No problem whatsoever. I mean, I was never tempted to those particular things. But there were other temptations were great temptations for me. I mean, John speaks of those temptations there in 1 John when he says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the, and the pride of life. I mean, we must realize that Satan can never make us sin, but yet he will constantly allure us to those sins by using these three things that John speaks of, the lust of the flesh, the eye, and the pride of life. So we must cry out, Lord, I'm I'm weak. Strengthen me, prepare me, cause me to depend upon Thee, for I cannot do it in my own strength. I know myself, and within me there is this longing. As, as Paul you know, writes about there in Romans 7, I do not do the things I know I ought to do, and I do the things I know I shouldn't do. I mean, that's the struggle of the Christian. Of course, when Paul was struggling with the thorn in his flesh, what did Jesus say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. And what is he pointing out there? It's when you realize that you can't do it in your own strength. It's when you realize that the only way that you'll have victory over that temptation is by the power of Christ. He goes on, he says, Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in the infirmities in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distress, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what we must realize. In other words, he's saying, when I'm looking to Christ, realizing I can't do it, then I'm victorious. 
So we must be aware of our own sinfulness. We must be aware of our own shame and weakness so that we will cry out to God for help, that we will cry out to God for strength, praying, Lord, do not allow my pride to deceive me as I live in this day. As I was listening to Dr. Kelly preach on this particular passage, he he shared a story about a young man he heard preach. He was in their seminary. He said he had only been married for one year and he got up to preach and, and he was listening to him and the man was preaching on marriage after only being married one year. Dr. Kelly said, I thought to myself, son, you did not pick the right subject to preach on, man. Only been married one year. And he said, um, he boasted about how him and his wife were so faithful and him and his wife were doing this and that and all, so on and so on. And he said, later, the young man came to Dr. Kelly and said, well, how do you think I did in the sermon I preached? He said, don't ask me. I don't want to reply. <laughs> he pushed him. So he, he said, well, first of all, you should not have preached that on that subject. He said, you haven't been through the fire. You haven't been through what it really means to be married until you have been with your spouse for a rather long time. Then, then I'd preach on marriage. And he said, the sad thing about it, he said, as the time went on by, that young man and his wife eventually split up. He said, pride before the fall. Not realizing how weak he was, how sinful he was. You know, I believe one reason God gives us children is to reveal how really weak we are. How helpless we are. I mean, we cannot change them. I mean, now we may try to make them like little Pharisees, and we can. We may threaten them and scare them to death to where they'll behave, knowing that the punishment is great. But we can't change their hearts. Only God can do that. And you know, really and truly, we cannot measure our success as far as how we raised our children until eternity. Not here on this earth. Not until eternity, really. To see, not only the next generation, but the generation. I mean, not only how we taught our children, but how did they teach their children, see? Understanding that we cannot raise up a godly generation unless God is pleased to do it through us. Thirdly, we must pray for a sensitive conscience so that there is true conviction of sin when we fall. See, our conscience must be in tune with God's Word and His will. We must allowed to be led by the Spirit of God, we must ask God to help us retain a sensitive conscience. Paul says in Ephesians, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He goes on in Galatians 5, 16, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we see how important the Spirit is in living in us and through us and enabling us. It is so important that we walk with God daily. That's why it's important that we pray this prayer daily. 
Especially with all that we're bombarded with, with, with all of the electronic increasing. The temptations are so great, constantly bombarding us. It's so easy for our conscience to be desensitized. We have to understand that we must realize that we can be led astray in just one moment by what's out there. One morning I was listening to Al Mohler. I try to listen to his podcast because he gives a world view every day. And one day he was talking about all of the sexual activities and the gender changing and all that that's going on. And, and he said a mother had written in and had, had shared with him about how they went to the park and there they saw two men. And her child goes, yuck! And he said, that was the right response. That was the right response. I mean, his conscience realized that ain't right, folks. And it's sad that so many people have desensitized their conscience to say, oh, that's okay. It's okay for people to live together. It's okay for people to fornicate. It's okay for people to have adulterous relationships. It's okay for people to change their sex. It's okay for them to do this and that. It's okay. I was shocked when I said, I believe it was 70% of people said that it's okay for you to have your own sexual identity. I mean, America's conscience has been desensitized. But we must realize as Christians that we must not flirt with sin or passionately participate in it. And it can happen by watching movies that violate God's commandments. We may foolishly think, well, it, it won't impact me. It won't impact my conscience. It won't impact what I think. It won't impact what I do. That's why the world is the way it is today. Now again, I'm not blaming the world. I'm blaming the church, folks. I'm blaming you and me. We are the ones that have become desensitized. We are the ones that no longer really speak out and speak against the sin of the world. We, we just go along with the crowd. We don't stand boldly against those that do evil, those who break God's commandment. Now, now I'm not saying that we ought to be legalists. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we're to be like the Pharisees. What I'm saying is, if our conscience is tender... It says, I don't want to do anything that would dishonor my heavenly Father. I don't want to have anything to do with this sinful thing. For I know that it's a violation of God's law. I'm not going to encourage these individuals that hate God... In Hollywood, I'm not going to encourage them. I'm not going to pay for their sinful lifestyle by promoting them, by being a part of their wickedness. 
That's what the Puritans stood against, evil of this world. We need to be Puritans, folks. I know Puritans are looked down upon. Why? Because they were like God. Christ-like. And the way Christ taught and the way Christ stood against sin put Him on the cross. A Christian must say, my desire is to be like Christ. And there is already so much sin in my life that I cannot imagine allowing more sin to enter into my life. I will not feed on sinful things. I will not allow my sinful heart to dig more into sin. And we must teach this also to our children, that it's a heart problem. Don't teach them, as I mentioned a while ago, don't teach them to be little Pharisees, legalistic. But teach them to pray that they will have a sensitive conscience. That when they sin at home, that they must realize that they have sinned. And that they must go to God and repent to be aware of their sinfulness and that they might have a desire to live for God and please God, that they might have a desire for salvation. Encourage them to be like David and Daniel and Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego to pray that they would not disgrace God, but they would seek His grace and that they would follow Him instead of the ways of this world to feed on Him instead of feeding on sinful things to seek to be great men and women of God and to put the emphasis on spiritual things, biblical things. We can be guilty of causing our children to put the emphasis on worldly things, to pridefully seek worldly things. No, we are to stand against evil and not bow down to the gods of this world, not bow down to the pleasures of this world. Teach them that God has given them a conscience that must be rooted in the Word of God and in the will of God and instruct them not to violate God's Word. Not to continue in sin, but to maintain a good conscience, one that is controlled by God's grace. We must fix our mind on heavenly things. Lead me not into temptation. To lead me away from sin. Lead me to God. Lead me to holiness and all that He would have me to do. Fix my mind upon Christ. Then I will not fall into sin. I mean, what happens when a Christian falls into sin? You probably say, I hope you say, Lord, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that sinful thought. But yet I know that sin remains in me. And I know why I do this. Rid me of that. Cause my mind to fix upon you. That's why I sinned. It was not fixed upon you. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of our mind. By testing. 
and discerning what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It also means that we are praying for an increase of hatred of sin. When you see how sinful sin is, then you can't help but pray that God would give you a greater hatred for that sin. If you see what sin has done against our Creator and against our Lord, then we ought to have a greater hatred for it. We must pray that God would fill us with a greater hatred for sin. Not take sin lightly. I mean, when you have a greater hatred for sin, what will happen? Then you will naturally avoid it. When you see what sin does, we know that God hates it. So we must pray that we would have a similar hatred as He does. Pray that He will show us the ugliness of sin, how it destroys life, how it ruins family, how it brings death. Open our eyes, Lord, to how sinful sin is. Cause us to see that sin enthrones man and dethrones God. How evil and wicked it is. That's what we're praying when we pray, lead us not into temptation. Then finally, notice he says, lead us. Doesn't say lead me. He said, lead us. So what he's saying is include your fellow brethren, your fellow Christians in your prayer. One of the first things that grace teaches us is unselfishness. In other words, to be concerned about our fellow Christian as much as I'm concerned about myself. Love one another. And one of the ways that we show our love for one another is we're concerned. Not only for their temporal welfare, but more importantly, their spiritual welfare. Now, I I get paid to pray for you. You're to pray for one another for nothing. I mean, you are to petition God... On their behalf. Pray for their spiritual growth. Pray for victory over temptation for their family. Every time, and and I've shared this before, pastors are to give their self to study of the Word and to prayer. I've shared with you. I break you. I want you to know that I pray for you. Every week, every one of you get prayed for by name. I have you divided up over the five days, Monday through Friday. And I encourage you, when you want me to pray for something particular, let me know. I pray that God would give you strength every day over sin. Give you victory in your life. Use you to proclaim the truth. Use you to be godly examples in your workplace. I pray for your health. I pray for your spiritual need. I pray for those things. But not only should I be doing that, you should be doing it also. That's what this prayer is saying. Us. He says there, lead us not into temptation. So pray for your brothers and sisters that they will not be led into temptation, that they will not sin. 
I think our lack of praying for one another is one reason why so many Christians fall into sin, because we're not praying for one another. That may be one reason why we don't see the salvation that we would love to see, is because we're not praying for each other's children and their salvation. I mean, what did James say in James 5.16? Confess your transgressions to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. William Gunnell says, It is not only our duty to pray for others, but also to desire the prayers of others for ourselves. Corey Ten Boone says, If we are true intercessors, we must be ready to take part in God's work on behalf of the people for whom we pray. Paul says, Galatians 6, 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Love one another. Love God, love one another. How do we do that? Bear one another's burdens. And we ought to, we ought to be able to feel free to share our burdens with one another. You don't feel free to share your burdens with one another in a local church. Where do you feel free to share? But we also must be careful. Do not use burdens as a gossip item. If someone shares with you a burden and it's between you and them, don't go outside, you and that person. They're putting their trust in you. I've seen people in years gone by who were very hurt because they shared something with someone and that person did not keep it silent. They shared it with others. Share your burdens. Feel confidence that that person who you share it with will pray with you about that burden. How we need to be a church that prays for one another, praying that God would not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I close with this Puritan prayer entitled, Happiness. O Lord, help me never to expect any happiness from this world. Wow. Have you ever prayed that? O Lord, help me not to expect any happiness from this world but only from Thee. Let me not think that I shall be more happy by living for myself. For I can only be happy if I employ from Thee. And if I desire to live in this world only to do and suffer what Thou hast for me. Teach me that if I do not live a life that satisfies Thee, I shall not live a life that will bring satisfaction to myself. Help me to desire the spirit and the temper as angels, of angels, who willingly come to this lower world to perform thy will, though their desire are heavenly. In other words, they'd rather be back in heaven. Now, if we were angels, that'd be the same thing. I mean, once we get to heaven, we don't want to come back to this lower world. But they come back to this lower world because God asked them to and they do what God would have them to do. 
and not set in the least upon earthly things. Then shall be that the tempter I ought to have. Help me not to think of living to thee in my own strength, but always to look to and rely on thee for assistance. Teach me that there is no greater truth than this, that I can do nothing of myself. Lord, this is the life that no unconverted man can live. Yet it is an end that every godly soul presses after. Let it be then my concern to devote myself and all to Thee. Make me more fruitful and more spiritual. For barrenness is my daily affliction and load. How precious is time. And how painful to see it fly with little done to good purpose. I need thy help. Oh, may my soul sensibly depend upon thee for all sanctification. And every accomplishment of thy purpose for me, for the world, and for thy kingdom. Let us pray. Father, I pray that this prayer that I just read would be real in each of your children's life that are here. How we need to pray to you. How we need to cry out to you. How we need you to teach us not to live a life that satisfies ourselves, but a life that satisfies Thee, and if our life satisfies Thee, then we will be satisfied. How we pray, Father, that our eyes would be set on Christ so that we will not be led into temptation and fall into sin, but that we will have victory over sin. How we pray, Father, that we would be more like Christ in all that we do and say, so that we might bring glory and honor to thy name, but cause us to remember that this only comes by thy grace, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.